0: Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. As we continue this Advent focus on the biblical songs of Christmas, our attention is drawn to another, I'll say a somewhat obscure figure in the grand story of Jesus' birth. This morning, I want us to consider Zechariah. We first meet Zechariah in the opening verses of Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. The Bible tells us something about Zechariah. He was a good man. There's nothing wrong with him, per se. He was a sinner, of course. Nobody gets out of that designation, but, but we'd look at him and say, man, he, he's somebody you want to live next door to. He's somebody that'd be good to sit down and have coffee with. Zechariah was somebody you'd love to sit around a campfire and tell stories with. Just a good guy. Just a good guy. But we understand that, that he and his wife suffered an, an immense amount of social scorn. What do we mean by that? Because they didn't have kids. And in that culture, if you didn't have kids, it was indicative that God had somehow withheld his blessing from them, that they were somehow under God's punishment. And so even though he was a good guy, when he walked away, people talked under their breath. Oh, that's Zechariah and Elizabeth. You know, they they don't have children. Something's wrong with them. At the same time, it's believed that there were as many as 18,000 priests serving in Jerusalem during this time. 18,000 priests. They had a rotation, you know, it was like the nursery schedule. Everybody had kind of had to serve a a section of time, and then when their time was up, they got to go back home. But there were 18,000 priests. Can you imagine being one of 18,000? Just one of 18,000 men. And knowing that everybody who knew your story was talking under their breath about you because of the social stigma. And so when we meet Zechariah, he's an older guy. He's got social stigma. He's just a one of, among 18,000. He doesn't meet our definition of anyone who is great or powerful or prominent. He's not like Isaac Watts who's got 750 hymns to his name. He's not somebody like that. He's just a regular, everyday guy. Just a regular regular pastor in a regular church in a regular town. Doesn't amount to much. If he were to write a great hymn, it would have likely just been passed on with anonymous listed as the writer. But you know what we find so often in the Bible? It's this kind of obscurity where we see God really enjoying working. It's this kind of just backwoods, nobody to speak of where God really likes to work God when he saw Zechariah he wasn't looking for a celebrity priest he was looking for someone who could simply be defined as faithful and Zechariah number such and such out of 18,000 caught God's eye so on the random day that Zechariah was chosen to, by Lot to go into the temple, all he had to do was burn incense. He wasn't even there to make a sacrifice. His job simply was to go in and light the incense. An insignificant inconsequential job in the grand scheme of things, it would be no different than than the person who whose job it is to to, to collect the offering back when we collected offerings before covid it's it 's that guy I mean just the the usher again it's not a, it's, we don 't vote on that as a church we don 't do that it 's just a guy that got picked on Sunday morning to go and, and pass an offering plate on the day that the random day Zechariah was chosen to go burn incense. <laughs> God showed up, sent an angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. I love that that's how angels have to introduce themselves. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Probably that's a legitimate introduction. I've never encountered an angel, but I would suspect that if I were in the temple all by myself, burning the incense, and something showed up in there with me, you probably need to say, Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. Maybe that's what he was telling him not to be afraid about. He says, you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. You see, what happened here is this was the return of Elijah that Malachi had pointed to 400 years earlier. This is is all happening here. On this random day that this random priest is sent into the temple to do an inconsequential job, the God of the universe shows up in the angel Gabriel and says, buckle up because I'm about to do something remarkable in your sight. And you know the story from here. Zechariah shows a little bit of doubt just like you would? Lord, are you sure? you seen how old she is? That's what he's thinking. And so Gabriel said, don't doubt the Lord. He tied Zechariah's tongue for the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and Elizabeth said, amen. (laughs) And so he returns home to his wife, and she gets pregnant. We know how that happens. And lo and behold, the first Baptist preacher is born. This morning, I want us to spend the rest of our time together looking at Zechariah's song, which appears to be, in all intents and purposes, the second Christmas song ever written. So if you've got your Bible already open to Luke chapter 1, please stand as we read this Christmas song, this Christmas prophecy, as we would know it, beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. God, thank you so much for the birth of John the declaration of his father, Zechariah. Thank you, Father, for the great and awesome things that you continue to do in our midst. May we apply and understand these words today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. What we have just witnessed here in the story of the birth of Jesus is an incredibly significant moment. For 400 years, there have been no prophets. No prophets from God. No one has come to declare, thus saith the Lord. And now, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were advanced in years, is this prophetic forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke wants us to understand just how important his name actually is. You know, all of Zechariah's family believed something important about the baby. They said he ought to be named after his daddy. Zech Jr. is what they all wanted him to be called. But we understand that this baby has already been named because Gabriel has already told Zechariah what his name should be. Elizabeth already knows what his name should be. Remember, when something is named in the Bible, that is the way of staking a claim of authority over something. And so when God comes along and says, you are to name him John, God has named him, and God has declared that he has authority over this young man. John may in fact be Zechariah and Elizabeth's baby, but God has made it very clear that he's got plans for this child. Yeah, notice something here. Neither Zechariah or Elizabeth are disappointed about God's plan for this baby. I mean, this is, John's got a tall order. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to, I mean, his end is not pleasant, He has one of the most grotesque endings in the New Testament. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are not disappointed by it. They celebrate it. They embrace it. They recognize that God has shown himself faithful by his promise to give them a child. But in this child, God is demonstrating to the world a faithfulness to his very own word. Zechariah teaches us something very important here. And when we are confronted with God's faithfulness, the only thing that we can do is to offer praise and worship and thanksgiving. How else can you reply when God shows himself faithful? And listen, church, we live today on the shoulders of 2,000 years of history of Jesus' work in the world, and we can look beyond that into the Old Testament, and God has proven himself over and over and over and over again that he is faithful. His word is true. He keeps his promises. He has kept them in history and he will keep them today. He is faithful. So what does Zechariah do? Moved by the Holy Spirit, he breaks out into this prophetic Christmas carol. And the first thing that I want us to glean from this song that Zechariah gives us is simply this. God is faithful in his visitation. Uh, There's a real simple word here that's easy to miss. Go back to verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. If you're a scripture underliner, highlighter, mark that word visit, that word visit. Our English understanding of the word is pretty simple, right? We appreciate the visit. We appreciate, I, I mean, especially after COVID, right? A visit is great. Somebody shows up at the house, a, a, a visit is good. Even for somebody who, who's like me, I'm kind of an introvert, right? I, I mean, uh, I, I like, you know, give me a quiet place in the house where nobody's there. I mean, that, that's, 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 that's money for me right there, right? I like a good visit. Like during COVID, I mean, when the mailman brought something to the porch, it's like, hey, you want to come in? You want, you want to talk? You want some coffee? Oh, no, man, I've got to deliver the mail. No, come on in, right? A visit is a visit. It's, it's just that. Friends come to visit. Family comes to visit. We're accustomed to a visit. And even in the Christmas story, Jesus comes to a visit. He's not staying. He's here for a season. Then he's going back to, back to heaven. But that word here has got just a little bit of a deeper meaning when you dig into it some. The word that's actually used here is the word that Paul and Peter use for bishop to describe an aspect of the pastoral office later on in the New Testament. So in in Paul's letters and and Peter's letters, he talks about the bishop. He's describing a role and function of the pastor, that office of leadership in the New Testament. And what it means is it's someone who looks at something intently. So the idea of of pastoral responsibility is is a, a person who is bishoping is someone who sees his people and takes time to visit them in their time of need. That is what the the role of of the bishop is. And Zechariah here is telling us that, that God is literally bishoping his people. In other words, that's an encouragement and a warning to us because God sees you and he knows your need. Listen to me today. God sees you today and he knows what your needs are. You bring your wants to him, and God says, that's a want, that's not a need. You bring your needs to him, and God says, I know about that. I know about your need. God sees you and knows your need. You're not alone. You're not left to sort it out all by yourself. God has visited us, and he continues to see and take note of our lives. There are no aspects of our lives that are hidden from him. You say, "Uh uh-oh. He knows your darkest secrets, but he also knows your greatest needs. There's another Christmas figure that supposedly sees you when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake, knows when you've been bad or good. Zechariah would say, you got the song wrong. You pointed it in the wrong direction. I've always called that song Creeper Claus. It does a much better job of describing Jesus, I'll say that. But you know, that's what makes the incarnation of Jesus so precious. God didn't watch from afar. He didn't sit in eternity and look down to earth and say, man, what a mess. What a disaster that place has become. He didn't just send angels to mitigate the truth. He didn't say, Gabriel, go straighten this out for me. He saw it, he witnessed it, and he visited us. He sent his very own son into the world that we might know how we should live and how we should act. He not only visited us as a sacrifice to pay the price for our sins, he visited us as an example. Just like he told the lawyer at the end of this parable of the Good Samaritan, now you go do and likewise. You go, you go do likewise. God is faithful. In his visitation secondly we see Zechariah reflecting on the fact that God is faithful to save us from our enemies Zechariah would reflect on the fact that God has demonstrated himself over and over again to be faithful to rescue us and save us from our enemies that's an interesting word considering the fact that Israel has been subject to the rule of her enemies for quite some time The people of God in the Old Testament were very much accustomed to living under the rule of their enemies. But I think that's why it's important that we recognize that Zechariah's song here is not just a song describing reality as it is today. It's described for us as prophecy. That means that the words he is speaking here, the words he has given to us, they have both short-term and long-term fulfillment. So when he looks forward to the day that the enemies of God are vanquished, when we think about being delivered from our enemies as the people of God, it doesn't mean that our lives are going to suddenly be freed from the attacks of those who are opposed to the gospel. Even today, there are missionaries in Haiti that are being held hostage with a ransom held over their head. There are people today who are very much suffering at the hand of the enemies of the cross. And so we read this and we say, well, well, God wasn't telling us the truth because there's people who are suffering under the enemies of the, of the gospel. How can, how can he save us from our enemies when there's very real examples of people who are suffering under our enemies? Men and women, we have to have an eternal perspective. And whatever consequences we face today for our faith, They will be remedied in the future. And all those who are opposed to the things of God today, the Bible says something very interesting. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will come a day where even the enemies of the cross will kneel before the Lord as judge and acknowledge that he is the Lord. The warnings Jesus would give later on in his ministry are potent reminders that our world is actually going to be characterized by an increase in hostility from the enemies of the gospel. Jesus warned his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. He warned them that there would be troubles, there would be tribulations, there would be issues that we face in this world. So we understand that we may be attacked by our enemies. We may even be killed by our enemies. But Jesus would remind us in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, if you're like me, you might look around today and feel that there's enemies around every corner. You flip the news on, and you find that there are people who are opposed to the gospel, people who are God-haters, hate the church, hate everything that it stands for. But God is faithful. There is coming a day that God will deliver his people into a new promised land that is free from the threat of harm. There will be no more mocking, no more scorn, none of those things. In all those things, the Bible says that we are more than conquerors. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul says no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Whatever oppression you today you will conquer it one day we aren't conquerors because of our greatness we aren't conquerors because of our cunning we're conquerors through him who loved us we flip forward to the end of the story We might even recognize the ultimate satisfaction of God's promise here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. John, in his vision there on the Isle of Patmos, says he heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Don't miss the fact that in the innocent birth of babies and in the quaint scenes of mangers and nativities, (laughs) God was sending the opening shot of the final battle for the hearts of mankind. Thirdly, God is faithful to rescue us from our darkness. The prophet Isaiah would say in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. If God is going to deliver us from our enemies, he also has to speak to us about the darkness in which we so often find ourselves. The last word from God in the Old Testament is also a powerful reminder that God is sending light. Malachi chapter four, verse two. But for you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The problem with darkness is that it's universal. And when it is dark, You cannot see where you are going. My young friend up here today demonstrated that very well for us. It's dark. You can't tell where you're going. We can blindfold you, spin you around in a circle, and you don't know which way is left or which way is right. When you are in darkness, you don't know the right way to go. And Zechariah gets right to the heart of it in his prophecy. Apart from Jesus, we sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Our enemies may be visible, but our darkness... Is completely spiritual and God is faithful to show us the light. John's Christmas story is a little different than Luke's, but we see in John's Christmas story a perfect reflection of what Zechariah is talking about right here. John reflecting on Jesus, the Word made flesh, begins in John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God who just so happens to be Zechariah's son. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone. That light was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who get, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Some of you today, you may be really struggling this season. This has been hard. The, the things we've had to endure, the, the discernment we've had to muster, the, the challenges we've had to face, the loneliness we've had to overcome, the struggles we've had to endure, it may seem like it's never gonna end. But I want to remind you of these things that Zechariah has pointed out to us. That if you're struggling this season, that God continues to visit you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Your situation isn't lost to him. He's not neglected you. He's not overlooked you. He's not abandoned you. He sees your need. He sees where you're at. He sees the desires of your heart. He sees your hurts. He sees your heartaches. He knows them all. It isn't lost on him. And he hasn't turned his ear from your prayers. And even in this difficult season, If you're in Christ, he is continuing to shape you and mold you more and more into his image every single day. Zechariah reminds us that there are still battles to be fought in this life. The enemy may be defeated, but he is still very much on the prowl. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. And the challenge for us is to not grow weary in the fight we must remember that we can never think that the enemy has won because we understand that one day all of our enemies will be defeated. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And every day we as Christians, we need to make sure that we approach our lives with our armor intact. Understanding that all the enemies of the cross will be vanquished in due time. And Christ shall reign victorious with all the saints. And then don't be overwhelmed by the darkness. Jesus' light continues to shine, and it continues to shine brightly. I vividly remember September the 16th, 2001. That was a few days after September 11th, 2001. That was the first Sunday after the terrorist attacks that struck our nation that terrible September morning. And I remember sitting in a sanctuary that day that was standing room only. There was nowhere left to sit. It was elbow to elbow. There was no room. Because people that day were stunned. For many, that was the first time that they had realized how dark and and cold our enemies were. The darkness was real. And that day, Jesus and his church were the only places that light could be found. Because light shines in the darkness. But over the course of time, you know what happened. That crowd dwindled. And eventually, it was the same folks that were there September the 9th, 2001. 2001. I'm going to tell you, we're living in a season, I don't know, it feels like the darkness is real. Like you could reach out and touch it. And as the church today, we must continue to be a place of light, where the light of Christ shines brightly, where the gospel truth is proclaimed, where people who are literally lost in darkness... Can find the right pathway as we move into this next year. I hope we, as the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ here in our community, that we'll recognize that our church is a place where we have to work to shine the light of Christ brightly into our own neighborhoods. I know we we jokingly talk about living in the buckle of the Bible Belt. That that everybody around us is a Christian. There's uh, literally more churches that are per capita than anywhere else in the world right here in our own backyard. If that was the case, you'd think it'd be a whole lot different, wouldn't you? But it's not. There's lost folks everywhere, people walking in darkness everywhere who need to be pointed to Christ. And listen to me. Political parties aren't pointing people to Jesus. Jesus. Presidents aren't pointing people to Jesus. Senators, congressmen, city councilmen, commissioners, it's not their job to point people to Jesus. Revival doesn't begin at the courthouse in Lafayette, it doesn't begin at the Gold Dome in Atlanta, and it doesn't begin at the White House in Washington. Revival begins in church houses. And it begins when we as God's people get serious about pushing back the darkness with the truth of the gospel. Because the only thing that fixes it, it's not legislation, it's not votes, it's not elections, because all those things change. Man, we could have the best Christian president next election, and he could pass all kinds of executive orders that, that do all kinds of things that we're like, yeah, that's good. And guess what happens when He's defeated the next guy could go in and write the same executive orders that undo all of them. And we say, oh, that's bad. But man, if the church will start to minister to people and reach people with the gospel, you begin to change the world. And that's our task. And right now, in this season, when everybody's singing Jesus songs, there's no good a time as now to start making that happen. You pray me, please. Lord, our task is very simple that our neighbors and the nations might know the gospel. That's it, it's not complicated, it is our task. And so, Lord, right now in this month of of Advent, the celebration of Christmas, when literally the whole world is singing songs of the Messiah's birth, it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that holds that truth. So, God, help us to be faithful, to point people out of darkness and into light. Father, I thank you for Zechariah's song of a reminder of your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to, to visit us, to watch us, to care for us, to know us. Your faithfulness to defeat our enemies. And your faithfulness to deliver us from darkness. All because of your great love. through the person work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his story that we tell. It is his song that we sing. It is his blood that forgives us. And it is his resurrection that guarantees our own. There is no better story in all of creation than that one. No other word will rescue people from darkness and help them see light. And it is our job to make sure people know it. So God, if we're struggling right now, I would pray that in these moments that of reflection that we would reflect on your faithfulness We would dwell in your goodness and we would glory in the fact that you have not forgotten us. In these next few moments, as we reflect on perhaps the enemies that we encounter, that one day you get the final word over that. But in the meantime, we, we wear our armor and we fight the battles. And if nothing else, that we would give thanks if we're your children, that you have rescued us from darkness and set us in the light. We know the way we should go. And Lord, if there's any here today who still dwell in darkness, if we were to ask them today, what happens when you die? They don't know the answer because they don't know where to go. That today, Lord, you'd move in their heart that you would flip the lights on that they might see Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.